Hey there, welcome back to Crypto Clarified Investing in the Truth. This is a podcast series where we come together from time to time to discuss the most captivating trends from the crypto space. My name's Benjamin Dean. I'm director of Wisdom Tree's digital assets team. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Jill Gunto, who's the head of strategy at Espresso Systems. Social media shout outs to kick things off. Look, hey, you're on an app right now. Hit subscribe. Make your life easier. Just do it. And if you share with your friends, tell them to subscribe as well. Do them a favor. Make their lives easier. You can always find me on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. And if you're in the US, wisdomtreeprime.com. Join the waitlist. You won't be disappointed. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Jill about, well, we're going to do a walk down memory lane, actually. We're going to talk about how crypto is used in different countries. Uh, we're then going to talk about scalability and privacy as two important challenges that have to be overtaken and surmounted in order to get mass adoption from networks like Ethereum and more. And then, as always, to finish things up, we're going to look to the future because the future is uncertain, but some people can see it. And uh, Jill's definitely one of those people. Before we start, though, a shout out to James and Sam in compliance. And for those of you who have your finger over the plus 30 second button, don't press it. Don't press it. You need to hear the disclaimer. Because before I begin, I have to clarify. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Espresso Systems and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Reliance upon them is the at the sole discretion of listener. Please remember past performance is no indication of future results. Now onto the fun stuff. Jill, it's so nice to have you here. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. This is going to be a great podcast. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. Uh, usually when we have guests on, uh, we'd like to kick off with a little bit about them. Tell me about how you got into the space. I know you've been in the space for a while, so you're an OG. Tell me how you got into the space and why. Yeah, depending on how you define into the space, it's been about a decade now since I first started paying close attention to crypto, spending time on crypto forums, predating even crypto Twitter. Uh, and I guess since I first bought into crypto, specifically, of course, Bitcoin, which was pretty much the only game in town back in, you know, sort of May of 2013 timeframe, which was when I when I became interested. Um, didn't buy enough, evidently, but we'd all say that in hindsight. Uh, I was working on Wall Street, actually, at the time, which you and probably many of your listener base can appreciate and, and relate to. Um, and I was working as, Yeah, and commiserate with. I wasn't going to say that. But <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that to you to call out. But, um, but very true. Uh, I was working as a bond trader um, when I first heard about Bitcoin, and it was actually through one of my brokers, uh, who is based in Argentina, um, based in Buenos Aires, who started telling me about how he was using Bitcoin to get his money offshore to evade capital controls. And um, that's actually not the first time I'd ever heard of Bitcoin, but it was the first time I ever paid attention to it. And it it did catch my attention. And I sort of thought to myself, okay, there's, there's something here, you know, there's something that 
he can do now with this new sort of form of digital money that he wasn't able to do before. And, uh, and that was what really kind of captivated my imagination at the outset. Well, Jill, you just said the word Buenos Aires, well, two words. <laughs> I'm in Buenos Aires right now. And capital controls are still solidly in place. Inflation is over 100% per annum here. And I have a giant bag of, sorry, podcast listeners, but this rustling is a giant bag of pesos. Like the stuff, <laughs> the, the inflation is crazy. The, yeah. The official rate last year was something like 20. It's now 200. And that's the official rate. That's the official like, rate. So that's dramatically understating things, right? Exactly. We think that we have it bad in the States. You know, we complain when inflation ticks up to sort of seven, eight percent. I, I think that what goes on in places like Argentina is unfathomable to most people privileged enough to be living in the West, at least for now. I, I don't know. Balaji Srinivasan and others might might contend that we're headed for a hundred percent inflation rate in the United States. But I think that we have a great privilege of the financial system that we're accustomed to relative yeah. to some of these other places. Absolutely. I mean, inflation's unofficially 15% in the United Kingdom where I live. And uh, it's not a joke. It's not 120% yeah. like here, but this is reality, right? And, uh, but you've lived in places like this in the past, right? Or you, I spent, I spent long periods of time there. Yeah. I don't know if I could quite claim that I've lived. Um, but I've spent, I've spent long periods in Argentina. Um, I've spent long periods in Colombia and on the border of Venezuela. Um, often actually in, in the last 10 years doing research on the role of cryptocurrency in evading capital controls, in serving as an inflation hedge, um, and doing all of these things that all of us who work in cryptocurrency, I think, love to sort of seek refuge in when we get asked, what is this stuff good for by our friends and family? Um, and I'm here to report that indeed, this stuff, crypto, Bitcoin, is actually, in fact, good as an inflation hedge and a way of a way of getting around restrictive measures and capital controls and so forth that so often end up sort of containing and, and punishing the average individual of a country. Um, so yeah, I've done I've I've I have spent a lot of time in these places and and done quite a bit of research in this field over the years. It's funny because it's it's the way that I got into crypto, as I mentioned, you know, it was sort of through that lens of uh, this friend and colleague of mine telling me about it in this context. And I've sort of stayed on that track and, and on that uh, bandwagon of, of interest um, ever since for, again, over a decade now. Yeah, well, that's how our paths inadvertently crossed years ago. And uh, listeners know I spent some time in Venezuela uh, and I get eerie vibes at the moment where I am right now from that time yeah. a decade ago. But I had the pleasure when I was living in Colombia to meet uh, Alejandro Machado. Shout out to Ali. Um, Hi, who was working on the Open <laughs> Money Initiative at the time. And uh, tell, tell us a bit about that, just in, in broad terms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's super interesting. So I might I might return for just a second to my own kind of trajectory because I think it's important context for how the Open Money Initiative came about. But um, 
I'd been working on Wall Street. I got interested in Bitcoin specifically, again, through this angle of a friend of mine using it as basically an inflation hedge while he was living in, he was from Argentina and he was still living in Argentina. Um, and I ended up sort of through a circuitous route, moving out to Silicon Valley, working for a Bitcoin related startup, blockchain startup. We pivoted around a few times. Um, cold chain. And then lo and behold, it was sort of suddenly 2016, 17 and the ICO boom was happening. And suddenly, you know, we had coins for your doge and for your dentist and for all manner of things. Um, it was very much sort of dot-com bubble sort of era, I would say, of crypto, just in terms of the hype and the speculation. And I won't lie, I was I was sort of swept up in that hype and, and in that speculation uh, during that period. Um, you know, I found myself spending a lot of time on a lot of projects that then upon reflection, I was sort of like, what are we even talking about here? Like, what's going on? You know, what is the utility uh, to this technology in this context? Um, and I was fortunate enough around this time to come upon a couple of like-minded individuals who are going through a similar period of sort of reckoning and questioning and sort of asking themselves, you know, okay, I've now devoted the last several years of my life and my career to this cryptocurrency thing, but what is it good for? One of these individuals was Alejandro Machado, um, who has an amazing sort of human computer interaction, engineering background. Um, he himself is Venezuelan. He grew up in Venezuela. Uh, and then the other person who I started spending a lot of time with around this time, this was, again, kind of 2018. So coming off of the highs, I guess, of the ICO boom at this point and that sort of peak period of, thro of froth is... Uh, a gentleman named Jamal Montessor, who had this, who has this amazing kind of product design background, had spent a lot of time at IDEO, had spent a lot of time on his own contributing to various open source crypto projects like Grin, if you remember that, um, one of the more kind of old school privacy and scaling projects. Um, yep. And the three of us just sort of put our heads together and we we're like, we're sick of the hype and the froth. Let's go find out what people are actually using this stuff for. Um, and, you know, we all kind of from our own perspectives had this inclination of like, okay, it does seem like there is real utility to be found in this stuff in places like not just Argentina, not even just Venezuela, but, you know, other locales as well, Cuba, Lebanon, Hong Kong, um, Turkey. You name it, you know, Turkey. Exactly. Yeah. You just mentioned just before we hit record on this, that Turkey is uh, now it, it appears to be ranked as number one in terms of like Jill, real. When I was in Turkey activity. recently. Yeah. I said, how can I pay for this? They say cash card or crypto. Amazing. Like, Amazing. Right? That's music to my ears. Yeah. It wasn't so, like yeah. So we, yeah. yeah, no, we, we put our heads together and we said, all right, let's, you know, let's start a project and, and go out and actually do this research to see how people are using crypto in these places. Um, and whether this is just kind of a nice bedtime story that some people in the industry like to tell themselves or else get up on stage at a conference and say, okay, you know, Bitcoin isn't useful for you, but for people in Venezuela or people in Turkey, it's useful. Um, 
And we managed to secure funding and also sponsorship from a number of projects, uh, projects like Zcash, like Tezos, Cosmos, a lot of the L1 projects, Stellar as well, who are interested in having this research done and having a group report back to them of kind of where the market opportunities are um, for their products, of course. And we took that grant funding, the sponsorship, and yeah, we flew specifically, first of all, uh, down to Colombia. Um, it was very difficult at the time to actually enter Venezuela, uh, so we didn't yeah. do that. But we spent we spent a good few months in Colombia um, working with Venezuelan migrants and spending time also on the border uh, between Colombia and Venezuela just to get a better understanding of whether and how people were actually using cryptocurrency. And again, you know, what what I'd love to share and and was very heartening to me at the time was probably the reason why I'm still building in this space was finding that although it's in at least at the time this was a couple of years ago now, although it was in small size, you know, it wasn't sort of one in every five people that we were meeting who knew what crypto was and was using it. For those who were using it, it was very meaningful. It was making a huge difference in their lives. They were using it to survive, in many cases, even thrive, despite you know the type of financial restriction and adversity uh, that they were facing. So that that's a bit that's a bit of the backstory to uh, the Open Money Initiative. And happy to speak more to kind of the process there and and the learnings. Look, when I lived in Venezuela, they used to say to me, like, oh, lots of Colombians moved across the border here uh, in the 80s because of FARC, basically. Uh, yeah. and so there was a mass migration. I used to work out in Petari, which is a barrio in kind of the, I guess it's probably the east of, of Caracas. But anyway, there were tons of Colombians there. And what struck me like five years after that being in Colombia was that it was in reverse. Like yeah. all these Venezuelans had basically moved across, you know, that from the border, right? Um, yeah. In a way, what better place to go and meet people who literally need this stuff because they're moving across. They might have ID cards. They can't open bank accounts. They all had cell phones. Like, yeah, exactly. It, it's Yeah, that was one. that was one really fascinating dimension, I would say, to... Uh, you know, talking to people, conducting research, getting to know people, making friends with people uh, based in Venezuela is that cell phone penetration is enormous. You know, I read a statistic at yeah. one point that uh, more people in Venezuela had access to cell phones than people in rural America, um, which is mind boggling, but but was it was true at the time and I hope is still true today. But, you know, one of the interesting dynamics and one of the things that we shared with uh, partners of ours, including places like Coinbase, is that all of their phones are stuck in time. They're all trapped in 2014, um, which was when, you know, things really started to, to go downhill in terms of external relations and in terms of, I mean, the economy was already heading that direction by that point in Venezuela. But you know, everyone was using sort of the version of Android uh, that they would have had access to at that point. And so you'd have you'd have crypto projects developing applications, for instance, mobile applications uh, in hopes of onboarding people in Venezuela without taking into account that they needed to be developing for a version of Android that was like 
you know, four or five years out of date at that point. And so it's these little sort of little product insights that you can have in places like this that I think end up really adding up and making a huge difference in terms of uh, adoption and in terms of accessibility of these types of things. But you really have to be focused on these markets and geared towards them. And I think that something that is um, a bit of an unfortunate dynamic within crypto is that during bull runs, I, I love building during bear markets so yeah. much better than so building during, during a bull run. It's so much quieter, but also during a bull market, there's just all of this impetus to build for these speculative use cases and to build for, you know, the people who are my neighbors of, you know, wealthy Americans um, living in places like Silicon Valley, you know, to build applications for them, which is all well and good. And maybe to some degree, you know, we do need to start there. But, you know, the stat that you were just sharing a few moments ago about uh, adoption in Turkey sort of makes you question, like, you know, if we were spending all of that time and resource instead building for, albeit maybe, you know, a smaller market in terms of income levels and spending power and all of that, but perhaps a much larger market, uh, in terms of real utility and real value derived from these things, um, where could we be now in terms of crypto adoption? I think perhaps, perhaps we might be getting at least fewer, uh, fewer questions and raised eyebrows from parents and grandparents around the Christmas dinner table asking what, what the hell this crypto thing is and why we're still spending time on it. Look, nothing beats going out into the wild in commas. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, like you go out and meet people and, yeah, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And, and how do you do it? And what's fascinating, I mean, this was seven years ago. I was fascinated that like the technology, because it's open source, right? Anyone can just download it if the cell phone is capable and they have an internet connection. But the software is everywhere when I did that work for Coin Center. And uh, yeah. it's only progressed from there. But your point is is so spot on, though. And I appreciate that. Like, when I was in Venezuela, everyone had Blackberries. And, like, you couldn't really put an application on a Blackberry. Uh, you certainly couldn't put, right. like, a Bitcoin wallet on it, right? But you're right. Like, in the end, everyone ended up with Android devices. And uh, that's how they access things. And, you know, you can build for, like... I mean, what is the proportion of the world's population that's American? 3%, 4%? You could build for that. Less than that, I think. Yeah, it's like, what is it, 300-odd million versus, what is it, 6 billion? I think it's 8 billion now, worldwide. Oh, gosh. It keeps going up. (laughs) Yeah, it keeps going up for the moment. And, uh, yeah, so you can build for that market, or there's, like, this massive market out there, folks who, like, are already doing it at like some like difficulty. Um, who are you building for? Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's a question that we certainly try and keep asking ourselves uh, at Espresso, and certainly is one that I wake up asking myself every day. But I, I'll and I'll come back to that in a moment. But just to close the loop on the open money sort of work and and findings, I think that. One of the most incredible things to me about that period of time of doing that work and again, getting to know those those people who we got to know through the process of, of doing that research was just that 
you know, for them, crypto wasn't sort of a movement. It wasn't a community. It wasn't, you know, a thing to hang out and talk about on Twitter. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of like a homebrew computing hobby. For a lot of those people, again, whether it was in Venezuela or Lebanon or, um, you know, Hong Kong or, or these places, crypto was just another tool in the toolbox. You know, you're talking to people who every day were just having to be so entrepreneurial and creative just to figure out how to get, you know, get money from their aunt who was living in the United States back into the country to be able to spend on groceries for that week. People who were trying to, you know, make enough money to support their family after, you know, their parents had lost a job or what have you. And they would have all of these tools in the toolbox of using sort of like Hawala credit systems or, you know, using using a shared Zelle account amongst like various friends, one of whom had happened to go to university in the United States and therefore had access to a Zelle account. They would all be sort of like managing to transfer their money in there and they would keep tabs on, you know, who actually owned what, but it was this sort of like, you know, not totally legitimate use in like this shared way of a single bank account. Um, and for them, using a tool at the time, the most popular one, this was a couple of years ago, was local Bitcoins amongst the people I spoke to. It was just another tool in the toolbox. It was just another another form, uh, in many ways, a more convenient form of being able to accept and transfer money and, and just to, to be able to, again, survive and thrive in these really closed financial systems. Um, and that's not a way that we... I think at least in America tend to conceive of crypto. We tend to conceive of it again, much more as kind of like a toy or a hobby or community or, you know, any of these things. And I think there's a lot of value to just coming back to it as just like a pure play product. And like, what is the value of this? You know, what is the user getting out of this uh, in the moment that they're using it? Yep. I love the word you use there, tool. Exactly. It's like, is there is there a hammer community or a screwdriver community? Right. No. It's like, I need to put a nail into wood, so I use a hammer. Yeah. And I need to screw yeah. a screw into a joint, so I use a screwdriver. It's exactly, it's a tool. Uh, and once you step back I wouldn't a be surprised bit, if there was a chainsaw community somewhere in the world, but <laughs> that's besides the point. There, there probably is. Uh, but you know, that's not what makes chainsaws go mass market. Chainsaws Indeed. need to cut wood Indeed. and they need yeah, to do it in a fuel exactly. efficient way. That's, exactly. that's also time efficient. Right. And that's yeah. it. They're not trying to sell chainsaws based on the hype. No. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a great way to think about it. It's a tool. Um, if people have a better way to do things that's cheaper, faster, more transparent or accessible, it could be one or all of those dimensions or some combination that they'll use it because yeah, when people exactly. need to get things done, they're going to use the most efficient way on certain dimensions. And that's what happens. Uh, exactly. Now let's pivot here and start talking. I want to hear all about espresso systems because you've had all this interesting backstory. You've seen all these things. And then a few years ago, you and a bunch of folks, get together for espresso systems. Can you run the listeners just through like the genesis of it and kind of yeah. where you are up to now? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, if the tool is cheaper, faster, more convenient, more accessible, people will come use it. That was sort of 
a takeaway of my work with the Open Money Initiative. Um, that has been sort of a theme that has cropped up again and again, I would say, over the course of my career in cryptocurrency. I think that that's a generally accepted sort of axiom at this point. Um, and really what our mission is with Espresso is to make on-chain experiences, is to make blockchains cheaper, faster, more private, critically, because of course, everything that you do on chain today is fully transparent to everyone, um, which is not going to fly for any kind of mainstream use cases, especially in more sensitive areas of the world, like the ones that we're talking about. Um, and also to make sure that these things remain open, accessible, open source, um, decentralized, you know, all of these things that uh, make blockchains blockchains and make it worthwhile to use a blockchain instead of just a centralized database to begin with. So we today, we have two core products that are not totally related, two separate products, two separate uh, directions, one of which is focused, as I mentioned, on privacy. Uh, that's called CAPE. And um, the idea behind the product of CAPE is to enable people on Ethereum to start with, but uh, hopefully uh, pretty soon on any chain, to determine the level of transparency and privacy that their tra transactions have. Um, so today, of course, you know there are some privacy tools out there, things like Zcash, things like um, Aztec and, and other privacy solutions that allow for full privacy of transactions. You know, you can kind of toggle into almost like incognito mode and have all of your transaction data be be private or it can be fully transparent and and on a fully transparent chain you know as with ethereum and bitcoin and also transparent um zcash transactions they have that option as well what we do is we make it with cape a bit more like you're opening almost like your Facebook privacy policy page where you can determine exactly who can see what data under what circumstances. Um, you know, so if you open, for example, that Facebook page, you can say, okay, my mother can only see these types of posts about me and my college friends can see all of these posts and this and that. Um, and that is obviously not exactly the use case, but that is a bit more uh, reflective of the type of functionality and the type of granular uh, privacy control that we're building with CAPE. Then on the other side, we also have a product that is geared around scaling and decentralization. We're building a sequencer network uh, for layer twos to be able to leverage, to achieve the decentralization that they're targeting without having to make compromises on all of the great scaling gains that these layer twos have made. Um, so again, two separate focuses, two separate products, uh, but all in service of this one mission of actually making crypto and on-chain experiences cheaper, faster, more reasonable, uh, more accessible, more private for users. Can we talk a little bit there about the layer two stuff and for the, the benefit of the yeah. listeners, right? Like, so you've got this layer one Ethereum, um, yeah. and then there are these layer twos that are built on top of it, which are designed to help scalability. Can you run folks through the problem with the way the layer two ecosystem is working in terms of like concentration and why you'd want to try and disperse the control that certain folks have over that second layer? 
Yeah. So I would say that there is basically two big challenges that the Ethereum scaling sort of roadmap and ecosystem is facing. So as you lay out, there's the Ethereum layer one today, which is great. It's a miracle that it exists. It does all kinds of things that, you know, we previously would have thought were impossible. It's highly decentralized, which is great for a number of things. It means that it's a, you know, relatively anti-monopolistic uh, uh, framework that it's working within. It means that it is incredibly neutral, which is kind of a crypto buzzword. But, you know, basically what it means is that it's this fully open permissionless system that, you know, is not going to be subject to manipulation or censorship or what have you in the way that the sort of centralized web or web two often can be. But transactions on Ethereum can be astronomically expensive during times of high congestion. Um, and things can also be very slow to settle if you're waiting six block, six block confirmations and things like this. It's not really reflective of what you want in an ideal you know, financial services sort of product, right? You know, where you want things to settle quickly. And ideally, you want things to be able to handle heavy transaction load without fees going up to, you know, to be paying $200 of fee on a $30 transaction. That's not going to work. So as you say, layer twos have come along and you can think of them as very high level, that there's sort of these batching mechanisms um, that allow many, many more transactions to get batched together and to keep fees down um, and to then still be settled to the Ethereum blockchain. Everything still is going back through the Ethereum blockchain, but you have this, again, this sort of abstraction or this layer sitting on top in the form of the L2s. Now, what we've ended up with, though, is this situation where there are many, many, many L2s being developed, firstly, and that's great because that's been hugely, you know, huge innovation and a hugely kind of competitive dynamic, which has helped yep. drive prices down even further on the fees on the network. Um, but you've wound up with all of these different kind of fragmented silos, right? Which reminds me a bit, just to tie it back, you know, I remember talking to some of the people specifically in Venezuela who would all talk about how they had to have six different bank accounts open because depending on where they were going, depending on who they were interacting with, because the banking system was sort of so degraded and broken, if they were going to a certain shop, they needed to pay the shopkeeper to her bank account at, you know, the, the specific bank that she had an account with. And so they needed to have all these different bank accounts open in order to transact with all of these people in these different fragmented silos. Well, the same thing has basically happened on Ethereum, where we have all of these different fragmented silos of all of these different L2s that can't interact seamlessly with one another. And then the other major issue is that all of these L2s have been busy just working on the scaling element of what they're building. And they all have it on their roadmap that they're going to decentralize all of these different components of what they've built. Um, and they are going to, you know, they are going to kind of continue to take on board all of that Ethereum ethos of, you know, necessarily decentralizing all of the choke points that may, might exist within the system. But um, that's just a huge roadmap to undertake. It's, you know, it's, 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 uh, 
something that no one has ever done before um, and is just a very, very lofty goal. And so what we're looking to do with the espresso sequencer, which is one of these components of L2s, is to solve both of these problems, is to help mitigate some of the issues of fragmentation. We can't solve that sort of in a vacuum. We'll still need to rely on bridges and other components, but to help mitigate the fragmentation and then also to be able to deliver decentralization to all of these L2s in the way that they're targeting. Yep, hard to square the circle. And it's just one of these yeah, sequential things. It's fascinating indeed. to see it evolve. Yeah. I mean, like if you wind the clock back a few years, like to have seen that whole L2 space with all the competing players, like you say, especially the zero knowledge proof stuff, like just emerge so quickly. It's it's a fast moving space, but someone's going to be. It gives me a lot of hope, to be honest. I mean, just just a year ago or a year and a half ago, people were sort of saying like, "Oh, we're not sure a zk roll up can even be possible." You know, zk EVM feels like the holy grail. It's so far off, and yeah, lo and behold, here we are with many competitors live on mainnet and in the market. It's very cool to see. Yeah, it's definitely kind of the foundational stuff that you see built during exactly this kind of period when all the hype's gone and like stupid things aren't being funded, you end up with stuff. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's a better allocation of resources, but uh, it's super promising to see. Um, let's talk a little bit about Cape. Uh, Cape is interesting. I know that because I've been playing around with it. Uh, Glad to hear it. It's, it's interesting because as you said before, like if things are going to go mainstream, you can't have all the transactions published online for anyone to see. And so run the list us through a little bit what CAPE is. Um, if you want to explain zero knowledge proofs, you can, because that's that's a word that keeps turning up. And I don't think Indeed. we've had someone come and explain it in, in broad terms. So you get the honor of doing that. Um, we know why privacy is important online, but how are you folks doing it through CAPE? Yeah, so I'll start with what CAPE is. So CAPE is just a smart contract. It's an application that lives on theoretically any blockchain someday, but today it lives on Ethereum and EVM or Ethereum-based blockchains. So it can live on any L2. It can live on uh, chains like Celo and, and other sort of Ethereum-adjacent chains like Polygon, etc. Um, and the functionality that exists within that smart contract is basically functionality to program a given token to have specific privacy policies around it. Um, and so, you know, as an example, if I am a stablecoin provider, uh, for instance, I can generate a stablecoin within the CAPE environment, within the CAPE application that might say, okay, I, as the issuer and provider of that stablecoin, I can see the full transaction graph. I can see who is sending how much to whom and, and so on. Um, but the general public can't see anything. And through, through doing that, you would be reflecting basically what exists today in sort of like TradFi or Web2 levels of privacy, you know, where, for example, PayPal can see, of course, if I'm sending you you know, $20 via the PayPal platform, they have access to all of that information. That's totally fine with me. 
I trust them. You know, the people who I don't trust are adversaries sort of like out in the world who might be interested and and be trying to gain access or to see, you know, how much money I'm sending to people and under what circumstances. Um, There's also much more kind of granular control that you can have over that. So, you know, to follow on the stablecoin use case, the same stablecoin provider might say, okay, we're comfortable with people, with our users having complete and total privacy for transactions that are less than $100. That's sort of de minimis. But then over $100, maybe they need to go through some KYC process. They need to have some kind of credential uh, that they can show to us, and then they can have total privacy. If they don't have that credential, then we get to see everything, maybe over a certain threshold amount, you know, the whole world can see things. So there's all kinds of uh, kind of programmability that you can get into here of who can see what and under what circumstances uh, with CAPE. So that's a bit about what it is. I'm happy to segue into how it works, unless you want to follow on on that. No, but that's an excellent description. And the really interesting part think is the way you use zero knowledge proofs in order to allow certain folks under certain circumstances, if the permissions are enabled, to be able to look in, in inverted commas, because like yeah. the reality is if you get a national security letter and you say, I, sorry, like, I don't know, uh, you're going to have a, a bad day. And that's not uh, going to go well. Yeah, no, indeed. No. So, but the the idea of the zero knowledge proofs is interesting because it's using nice mathematics to uh, allow you to do it. So you can just run that through just a very high level because, yeah. you know, we could go yeah, down a sure. total rabbit hole for an hour on zero knowledge proofs, but it's not necessary. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we are, I mean, I will say we at Espresso, firstly, we are privileged. I am privileged to work with some of the sort of like preeminent, you know, researchers and academics in this field, but even they would tell you we are all standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to zero knowledge proofs and their implementation, particularly in the crypto space. Um, A lot of this innovation was really pioneered by Zcash and, you know, the kind of predecessor project, which was called Zero Cash or Zero Coin, um, which was one of the first privacy projects to come about in the crypto space uh, and was certainly the first to implement zero-knowledge proofs. So how does that work? What are these mysterious zero-knowledge systems that we keep talking about? Um, In order to get there, we should talk very briefly about how blockchains work, just to begin with, you know, how the Bitcoin network works, how Ethereum works. A crucial step of the blockchain being reconciled in any of these cases is that there is a broadcast that's put out to all of these different nodes or computers, miners, or, you know, in the case of Ethereum and other stakers that are on the network. Um, Transactions get broadcast out to them, blocks get broadcast, and then through a consensus system, all of these different nodes, all of these different computers come to agreement on what the state of this blockchain database is. 
Now, if you want to have privacy in your transactions and within the context of these blocks, uh, then you're going to run into an issue with this, right? You know, you can't just broadcast out all of the data and, you know, sort of gossip around to all of the other computers on the network and say, all right, we good? We're all on the same page. We all got that. Okay. Because of, of course, no one can see what the details of the transactions are. No one can see the contents of the block. So instead, what we have to do is we have to find a mechanism by which everyone, you know, all of these networks, all of these computers rather on the network can still come to agreement. They can still reach consensus without knowing what the contents are. And now, fortunately, cryptographers many decades ago, you know, before cryptocurrency even came along, had been working with this idea uh, of, of zero knowledge systems. So zero knowledge here, meaning you have zero knowledge of the thing, of the contents of the thing. Um, and it's, you know, zero knowledge proofs, zero knowledge systems are a way to prove something and to verify something without actually having that underlying knowledge. And so a sort of naive, simple, real world example of this would be if I could walk up to a bar and if I could say to the bouncer, right, you know, Yes, I am over the age of 21 in the United States. Um, that's how old you need to be to get into a bar uh, without having to, sh to tell him my birthday, without having to show him my ID. If there is a way that I could prove that to him in zero knowledge of what my birthday was such that he would have to believe it. Um, and believe it or not, you know, there are mathematical ways that, that we can achieve this. And these mathematical mechanisms are again called zero knowledge proofs. And so that is the role that zero knowledge proofs play in these privacy settings is they are basically allowing for the transaction details to remain totally encrypted while being broadcast and then still allowing the computers on the network to all verify that, okay, everything here looks good. You know, we're all in agreement. These transactions are legit and we're all in agreement on sort of what the state of the world and the state of this database is. Uh, then there's even fancier things that you can add on to that, which is partly what we do, um, where you can have then certain parties have decryption keys so that they can selectively reveal things about the transactions or about the contents of their wallet, things like this. Um, but that is that is getting into, I guess, like 102 territory from uh, from the 101 of zero knowledge. So good. Thank you for the explanation. We love clarifying yeah. things on the show. That's why it's called Crypto Clarified. And you've just clarified zero knowledge proofs in a very concise Happy way. Happy to. <laughs> love so it. if you want uh, lesson 201, you'll have to find Jill on the interwebs. But before we get <laughs> to that point, because we're coming up on time, uh, Jill, the future. Uh, you think about the future. Uh, I also do. What are you keeping your eye on and it doesn't have to have anything to do with espresso systems and cape and scalability what have you got your eye on at the moment what's the most interesting thing in your opinion for the next yeah. six 12 months i think i think one of the most interesting areas um you know outside of course of the things that i mentioned around privacy and and l2 ecosystems within ethereum and so forth i think one of the things i'm most excited about is new forms of on-ramps into crypto and also new wallets and new wallet experiences uh, within crypto. I think that those are two areas of the user experience that 
historically have just been really challenging and really broken. I'll never forget, you know, the, I think it was around Christmas time of 2017, during again, that sort of peak craze hype cycle, sitting down with my brother, who was very, who's a very smart guy, and, you know, was very enthusiastic about learning about crypto, and walking him through setting up a Coinbase account. And I think I walked him through setting up like a hardware wallet. And he was just horrified that like this was the state of things that, you know, it was going to take him four or five days to wire money into his Coinbase account that, you know, he had to write down this set of words off of this hardware wallet and, you know, put it in his sock drawer or whatever. <laughs> like he was absolutely horrified. And things have improved since then, I'm happy to report, but not by that much. Like we're still a long ways off from things being truly accessible. And this also, I think, comes back heavily to, you know, a lot of the research that I did uh, with the Open Money Initiative and so forth, where you know, local Bitcoins, again, was the key product that was a lifeline for so many people who I spoke to, which was such a, I mean, it's basically Craigslist to buy Bitcoin. Like exactly. it's such a simple, such a simple product, but so critical because that is, that is what people were using to on-ramp into, into crypto. Um, and that's people's sort of like first experience of it. And so I think nailing that is really important. So you know, there are projects that, that I've I've been watching, um, like Azteco is one. Yeah, Azteco. Uh, Shout out Beauty On. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I, I don't actually know them, but yeah, I've been following I've been following the product. Um, yeah. They're launching in Mexico, 45,000 stores, so and cool. they just raised some money led by Jack. That's awesome. It's terrific. I love to hear that. I love to so, hear that. So yeah, like as Azteco, you can buy a voucher. Like uh, if you used to get, or you still do get prepaid mobile vouchers. Uh, so you pay your money, you get a voucher, you redeem it, you use your QR code, or you just punch it into the website, and you got Bitcoin on your cell phone. It's uh, huge. It's amazing. It's terrific. And it's it's it. like a whole new riff on what sort of the crypto on ramp experience can look and feel like. And designed, and I think, for a very specific demographic in mind who hopefully is going to actually get the utility out of it. So It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, how do people use the technology? Like, how do they exactly. do it? You were saying, like, Android versions are a few levels behind? Fine. So what do you build for? You build for yeah. what people have. And that's exactly, exactly what they do. Beauty On will say it. He says it on his, his Twitter. You can find him at beautyon underscore. And uh, he'll say, how do you like, spell well, that? it's at beautyon and an okay. underscore at the end. Cool. Uh, Akin Fernandez. He just goes, look, everybody knows how to buy mobile vouchers. And uh, instead of buying mobile credits like you do in Kenya with M-Pesa, you buy Bitcoin. Everyone knows how to use it. Totally. Everyone's accustomed to it. Don't fight the tide. Uh, yeah, there you um, go. Exactly. Yeah. So... Anyway, that's that's a yeah, great example. Things like that, I'm I'm super bullish on, and and yeah, following closely because that's I, it's quite far from you know the the types of use cases that or the the layer of the infrastructure stack that I'm working on specifically. You know, I'm quite a bit deeper down the stack at this point with Espresso, um, but I think that that is sort of the other half of it is the actual like end user experience and, and even interfaces and what that product looks like that is going to get us to actually onboard people into this new system. 
The UX stuff has gotten better. You're right. There's still more to go. I'm uh, here. Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N, Moon Wallet. They're, they're based here in Buenos Aires. Moon Wallet. You go in there and you're saying your brother before, like, oh, I've got to write down my seed phrase yeah. and then put it next to my gun. You didn't say that, but <laughs> it's like I've got to <laughs> more keep, or less. Yeah. I have to keep the thing safe. Moon Wallet. You go straight in. It works. And then you can store your private keys if you want. But like little things like that, uh, just making the user experience more accessible. And uh, that's, you know, eventually what happens, of course, is that you onboard enough people into the system and it becomes a circular economy. Yeah. You don't need on and yeah, off ramps. Exactly. And that's kind of what's happening, actually, for a lot of folks. Like, yeah. they've entered this parallel system and they once the, they move stuff in, they don't move it out. So, yeah, UX. We're getting there. Yeah, bit by bit. It takes time, but you know, like it's no central commander here, right? The whole idea is just to yeah, centralize. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. and you need you know folks working on important things, not like silly NFT infrastructure, Web three things. So, cool. Amen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so we're up right up on time. Um, Jill, how can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, I am at Jill R. Gunter uh, on Twitter, uh, J-I-L-L-R-G-U-N-T-E-R. Um, and then, yeah, our website is espressosys.com, espressosys.com. Um, and yeah, I would encourage you to hit me up there. I spend way too much time, as I was telling you, Ben, on crypto Twitter. So uh, yeah, if you at me, chances are I will see it. <laughs> Yeah, good. But there's lots of people who are wrong on the internet. So someone's going to be out there on crypto Twitter telling them they're wrong. Uh, if you want <laughs> zero knowledge proofs 201, you know where to find Jill now. Go to Espresso Systems website, download Cape and, and have a go. It's, it's really cool, actually. And uh, with that, yeah, we're out of time. Too. Yeah, do it. Uh, we're out of time. But I hope everyone found today's podcast useful and informative. If you're in the US, wisdomtreeprime.com. Join the waitlist. You won't be disappointed. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. Share with your friends and subscribe. Do both of them. Share, subscribe. Two S's, alliteration. If there's a reminder you would like any other topics picked up in future episodes, you can use the snail mail, crypto, clarified at wisdomtree.com. You can hit us up on the Bird app. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have an excellent day.